VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. He thought he was going to be famous. He thought he was going to be acclaimed and win a Nobel Prize and astound the world. And he was only right in terms of astounding the world. He was wrong on everything else. To me, the worst thing he did was do an experiment on people, not just on people, on people, on on, on embryos that were going to become babies, where the risks were enormously greater than the benefits. That's Hank Greeley talking about one of the scariest things that are now possible, editing the genes of humans in a way that changes can be carried down through generations without fully taking into account the risks. Hank Greeley is a Stanford professor who explores the ethical issues raised by biological and medical research. His book, CRISPR People, focuses on an extraordinary experiment carried out by a Chinese doctor named He Zhenkui. This is a really fascinating story. The experiment Dr. He did was, was unprecedented, right? How did that come about? There are a lot of interesting things that I think made this possible. And one was that Dr. He uh, was highly sought, sought after. He was a brilliant young scientist trained in part in China, and then he came to the U.S. for his Ph.D. and a postdoc, and the Chinese wanted to get him back. And so he was offered a lot of money without a lot of strings attached to set up a lab in South China. Not only did he get money from both the local government and the national government, but he also set up some businesses that got lots of money. So unlike most scientists, he didn't have to write a grant application and say, here's what I want to do, here's why I need the money, please give it to me. He had money floating around that he used for this in a, in a well-prepared laboratory. So what did he do? I think it's important to describe sure. what he did, because uh, on one level, it sounds like a good thing that he did, which was what? So he got some parental volunteers, couples where the man was HIV infected and the woman was not. They wanted to have children who would not have HIV, which would be a good thing. He told them that he was going to try an experimental method that would protect the children from HIV. It was described in the consent form as a HIV vaccine. Uh, but what he was really going to do is use in vitro fertilization. So take eggs from the woman, sperm from the man, combine them. So combine them, make embryos, and then use a process called CRISPR to edit the DNA. What he was trying to do in the DNA was to knock out a gene that seems to be very important in 
helping HIV to infect T cells in your body, which is the main way HIV kills people. Now, this gene is called CCR5, which stands for something even I don't remember. And it is it makes a protein also called CCR5. If you make the gene, if you break the gene so it doesn't work, it won't make the protein. If it doesn't make the protein, that protein doesn't end up on the surface of T cells, and if it's which are part of your white blood cells, part of your immune system. And if that protein is not on the surface of the T cells, the most common version of HIV cannot infect those T cells. It turns out that about you know, roughly one person in a hundred in Northern Europe doesn't have properly functioning CCR5 genes. So they don't make CCR5. It doesn't go on their T cells. And they seem to be very, very resistant to HIV. They've got a particular mutation that cuts out 32 letters in the DNA. What Hu was trying to do was make that change in all the embryos. He, he ed- tried to edit about a dozen embryos. Uh, only three really took. So with two of them, he put them into the uterus of the woman whose eggs had been involved. He had tried to knock out that 32 letters. He failed at that, but he did knock out other parts of that gene. So the gene shouldn't work. So in theory, he made the girls, these were two twin girls, not identical twins, Uh, resistant to HIV. In fact, though, instead of making this 32-letter deletion, which we know exists and people can live to a healthy old age with, he made a new version that's never been seen before in humans. We don't know how it's going to work. And for one of the two twins, he only was able to change one of the two chromosomes that carried the gene, so she has no protection at all. Hmm. The other girl may be protected, may not be. And frankly, something I find really frustrating about this, it's now two and a half years since this was announced. Uh, We haven't learned anything new about the health or the genome status of these babies since November of 2018 because the Chinese (laughs) government is not sharing any of that information. We don't know whether they're healthy, whether they're sick. We We don't know what happened to their DNA exactly. How did news of hers experiment get out? That's such an interesting story. So this got announced on a Monday morning in China. The news broke. It was actually an investigative reporter in Massachusetts who found the story and broke it. And then Hood decided the story's been broken. I need to do a big announcement. It broke Monday morning in China. The very first report was in the Chinese, uh, in, in the main Chinese government newspaper, which said Chinese scientists lead the world. And it was mm-hmm. a very favorable report. <laughs> a few hours later, 122 Chinese academics, mainly scientists, but some, some ethicists too, put a letter up on WeChat, which, as I understand it, is kind of the Chinese equivalent to Facebook, in which they said this was a terrible thing. And not only was it a terrible thing, but this embarrassed China. This Mm -hmm. made us look bad in the face of the world. Two hours later, the government puts out a notice saying, this is a terrible thing. We're investigating seriously. 
I don't know whether that that open letter made a difference, but I do know that before the open letter, the one piece of response had been positive, and after the open letter, all of the responses from China were negative. So maybe maybe Facebook or its equivalents uh, occasionally do some good things. <laughs> Let's go a little more deeply into what was wrong with it, because the motivation sounds good, but why did he make a mistake? So his motives, I mean, you look too deeply at anybody's motives. Um, and was, Not unmixed. Was, right. right. He, wanted to be, he wanted to be famous. He thought he was yeah. going to be famous. He thought he was going to be acclaimed and win a Nobel Prize and, and astound the world. And he was only right in terms of astounding the world. <laughs> um, he was wrong on everything else. But I think the idea of trying to prevent HIV infection has merit. I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, and it turns out, especially in China, where HIV infection continues to be very, very heavily stigmatized, and people with HIV in China are not treated well. Um, that's mm. that's clear. And I think my impression is, who, who I've never met, so this is third or fourth hand, I think he may have been genuinely concerned about the plight of these parents with HIV in China. But what did he do wrong? To me, the worst thing he did was do an experiment on people, not just on people, on people, on, on, on embryos that were going to become babies, where the risks were enormously greater than the benefits, the potential benefits. So the potential benefits to these little girls are that well, in 20 years, maybe if everything goes well, they'll be less susceptible to HIV than they otherwise would. But that's if everything goes right, if there's not any health problems from it. If we don't have a cure or a better prevention for HIV in 20 years anyway, we already have pretty good ways to prevent or treat HIV now. The benefits are small to these twins. The risks are potentially enormous because no one had ever done this before with humans. We'd barely even done this with monkeys. Nobody knew, and by this I mean gene editing the embryos. Nobody had ever gene edited CCR5. Nobody had ever made the edit. Nobody had ever seen the change he made. So the risks are potentially enormous. The benefits are fairly small. And there are two the two most basic rules about doing research on humans is the benefits have to justify the risks. They're not necessarily just the benefits to the human subject. They could be benefits to science or medicine, but we don't let people be research subjects if the risks are enormous and the benefits are small. So science doesn't come to consensus very often, right? <laughs> Scientists, There'll be a scientist who disagrees about just about anything, as we've seen with the whole COVID pandemic. You know, most 99% of people will say X, but there'll be somebody who says not X. The closest I've ever seen to a scientific consensus is don't do this in people yet. Um, everybody, every scientist almost in the world had agreed with that, as did ethicists, lawyers, and others. Everybody except her and sort of maybe a Harvard professor named George Church, who's 
a very controversial character. There's an international consensus that's been um, reported that there, there are five, ten different international and national reports saying, don't do this, at least not now. And he did it anyway. And he did it in secret. He never told anybody he was going to do it. He never asked anybody's, he, he never opened a discussion about it. This is about, I mean, I, I hope the girls are okay. Now, in terms of not knowing that he was doing it, I think I remember in your book that there were people, scientists, who were aware that he was planning to do it and who didn't say anything in advance. Yeah, that's an um, interesting issue. There were at least eight American academics, most of them scientists, although one of them was an ethicist. Um, three of them were actually... Uh, at my home institution, Stanford, and nobody reported him. Nobody said anything about it. Uh, some of them knew he was planning it. Some of them knew that he'd actually started it. Uh, I think one thing science needs, and this is going to be tricky, uh, is to encourage snitching. I, I use that term on purpose. Nobody likes snitches. Nobody likes snitching. But reporting bad things uh, is a good thing. Science has a very strong culture of confidentiality, in part because scientists don't want to get scooped by somebody else. But I think science overall, with a capital S, needs to say, look, if you see something that's really unethical, you should have a duty to report it. To the whom? second part of that, who, who, yes. Should you, who should you report it to? Exactly. They, they need to not just say you should report it, but they should give you some relatively easy way to do it. And that could be a national body. It could be an international body. It could be something set up by academies of science. It could be something set up by the WHO. Now, I would not want to be, I would not want to have that job, right? Because people have lots of different views about what's unethical. And you might get a hundred complaints of which only one is very credible. Um, but I think we need to do that. And we see that, you know, uh, California um, had a really nice program several years ago to deal with doctors who had either alcohol or drug impairment. And they encouraged nurses and fellow doctors to report them. The reports would be anonymous. The doctors were not immediately stripped of their practice. They were told they were investigated. And if it was found that they were impaired, they had to go through a residential program and a six-month probation period, and that seems to have worked fairly well. But you have in those cases an authority with overarching power. Yes. Whereas in a broad scientific community that spans the globe, you've got different governments, different sets of values, different motivations for praising it or condemning it. And in that case, within hours, both. Yeah. So uh, absolutely right. Uh, I am a law professor. And uh, what I'm really calling for here, part of it could be law. You could have individual countries come up with law. You could, in theory, have an international treaty, although I'm not very optimistic about any of those getting through successfully. But I think we need to... We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. 
I think if the various academies or the WHO or some other international organization, even without legal authority, says, you need to do this. Here's a way to do it. We encourage you to do it. We, we will applaud you if you do it. Uh, I think we'll see that. One of the Stanford people who actually knew about this is a uh, guy who works on gene therapy, particularly on sickle cell disease. And he gave, gave a talk uh, at my center after this all broke. And he said, you know, looking back on it, I wish I had told somebody, but I didn't know who to tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could tell Stanford, but Stanford had no authority. And I had no idea what, who to tell in China about this. So I think it's, it's kind of a case of if you build it, they will come. Or at least if you don't build it, they won't come. Maybe it <laughs> won't work. But if you don't try it, it definitely won't work. It seems to me that inherent in what we're discussing right now, the, the lack of a single place to go, is also at the heart of what to me makes ethics a courageous and difficult and sometimes impossible task. Now, I'm talking to an ethicist, so I want to say that in the most encouraging way. (laughs) I think you have a really hard job, and congratulations on doing what you can. But you have no single umbrella of values over all of us. There's no single frame of reference. So how do you handle that? How do you handle the fact that one size does not fit all? So different people handle it different ways. Some people think there is a right answer. Um, Some find it in religion. Some find it in universal human rights. Um, This one is, frankly, is above my pay grade. Uh, I, I don't, I can't see how it can all be relative. I can't say, well, the Nazi ethos was fine for the Nazis. It was in their culture. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. I don't believe that. But if I say, no, they're universal human rights, I've got to say, well, where do they come from? And what are they? And how are they defined? That's hard to do, too. So you're right. I don't certainly have clear ethical answers to everything. But I got some pretty clear answers to some things, like the benefits of the research have to justify the risks to the people, or people need to be told in advance when they're getting involved in research and what the benefits and risks are, and they they need to make a voluntary choice. When we come back from our break, Hank Greeley tells me about another very recent experiment that raised ethical red flags. The research involved creating embryos by combining human cells and monkey cells. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. 
patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Hank Greeley. So the role of the ethicist then is to fly the flag of caution, ask people to stop and think, is this the best path to take among the choices you have? Yeah, I think that's one role. I think that's one thing we can do. But, but you know, you say the ethicists. There are a lot of ethicists out there. I actually consider myself a law professor who occasionally does a little bioethics, does a little work in bioethics. Um, so what would be an example of that? Of, of doing do, a little work in bioethics? Oh, so um, there was just a really interesting scientific paper that came out last week, week ago today, about people who made embryos, early embryos that had monkey cells and human cells in them. Hmm. Um, it came out in, in one of the leading uh, scientific journals, Cell. And along with my uh, friend and colleague, Nita Farahani from Duke, uh, we wrote uh, an 1100 word, which for a law professor is tiny. That's clearing our throat at 1100 words. An 1100 word commentary that ran in the same issue of Cell saying, here are the things you should think about. Remember, this is only an embryo in a dish. It did not become, it was not put into a monkey's uterus. It did not become a fetus. It did not become a little human key or yum key or monkman. I'm not quite sure what the right term is. Uh, and so part of it is, is to say, here are some of the issues that we think you should think about. Here are, and we're not telling you what, answer you should reach. There are some things where I am willing to say, I will tell you what answer you should reach. If you're Hu Zhang Kui, you should never have done that experiment. But for the, for the most part, I think a big part of the ethicist job as I see it, the way I view what, what we do, is to help people see what the issues are, help them think them through, give them some precedents and advice and examples about how people have handled similar situations. It's not to be a judge or a priest and say, ah, you go to hell or you go to prison. It's to say, well, look, here's some, here's some issues you should think about here. Consider this, this might be a more ethical, a better way to reach the same result. Can I ask what they thought the benefits would be of mixing Monkey genes with human genes? Sure. It's really an interesting story. Um, 
It's a, the, the lead scientist is a guy at the Salk Institute in San Diego named Juan Carlos Belmonte, whose goal is to be able to make human kidneys and livers and lungs and hearts inside pigs in order huh. to have organs for transplant. 50,000, 80,000 Americans die every year while they're waiting on a transplant list. And you could do this with mice and rats, but it's really hard to get the human cells to take in pigs. He's tried it, and it doesn't work hardly at all. So his hope was if he could get it to work in monkey embryos, maybe he could learn something from the monkey embryos that would help him get it to work in pig embryos. Is it the answer? Um, no, it's one, one of 50 steps that would be needed before you could grow your own kidney in a pig. Um, and will it necessarily work? No. Do I think it's a long shot? Yes. But for all the people who die waiting for organ transplants, it's probably a long shot worth worth taking. So, But I'm glad you asked that. I mean, one of the first things you should ask in doing an ethical assessment of any sort of research is, why are you doing this? What's the potential benefit? And, and if the answer is, oh, I just thought it would be fun. Um, <laughs> you can do that as long as the risk is really, really, really low. The, the great Frankenstein, Freud, Prometheus myth, the, the scientist or somebody who is doing something just because they're fascinated by it and without paying any attention to society, that's relatively rare in reality, in my experience, Hu Zhongkui being perhaps an example of it. But that's, that's a storyline. That's one of the 10 great plot lines, right? That's a storyline that's so deeply embedded in our culture that it's easy for people to jump to it. Scientists need to science as a whole. Not every scientist. Some scientists are bad at this. Some will be good at it. They will all get better if they get good training in science communication. Uh, but they need to explain, they need to, to particularly on controversial things, be willing to explain why they think this is a good idea and to do it in a context that says, you know, um, we understand that if the government, if the people, if the culture decides this is a bad idea, it's not something we should do. Uh, we have to justify what we do. We have to engage with society to convince them about why some of the things we want to do make sense. Some of the things that may seem bizarre to them, like the embryo made of a, from, from a monkey and human cells. You know, you raise an interesting question in my mind. There have been scientists who have expressed the idea that it's not their job to judge the value of what they're doing. Their job is to explore nature and find out new stuff about nature. And the question that it raises in my mind is, does science in, a, in general have the only responsibility or are the people who are actually doing things that might be of questionable value, that might be riskier than we overall want, do they have a responsibility to reflect on it themselves? Jennifer Dowden did that early on, raised the, the note of caution about CRISPR. Yeah. And by contrast... One of the reasons 
Richard Feynman, who worked on the atomic bomb during the war, one of the reasons he went into a deep depression was that while they were making the bomb, all of the scientists at Los Alamos were excited about solving the problem Mm -hmm. and excited by that alone. And it was only after they saw the results of the terrible explosions that occurred and the death of so many people that they began reflecting on it. I forget, I think it was Teller who said, uh, I am now become death or something like a phrase like that from the uh, Oppenheimer. We've become, Oppenheimer, I've become yeah. Shiva, destroyer of worlds. Right, right. So there was, and that was at the test, at the test site yeah. where he saw the destruction yeah. it could cause. But what about the responsibility to reflect on whether or not you're actually doing something wrong versus all you're supposed to do is learn? So I can't prove any of this. It's a problem with ethics. There's no um, accepted, universally accepted rule book. But I think if you are human, You have to take responsibility for your actions. You have to think through your actions and how your actions are going to affect your fellow humans, the the ecosystem, the world, Um, whether it's, you know, are you driving recklessly or not? Should you not be driving after that third glass of wine? Or is it, should I be working on this particular uh, weapon system or not? I think that the blessing and the curse of being human is being self-aware so that we can recognize that we are responsible, that we have responsibility, that our actions have morally significant consequences. And once we can recognize that they do, I think what follows from that directly is we have an obligation to, to discharge, to, to, to do what we do in the best way we can, or at least in the least bad way we can. Let me ask you, there's a third way science can respond to breaches like this, and that has to do with humility. What what do you mean by that? So all of us, including myself, can probably do with more humility, but I find that sometimes scientists think that science is not only really important, which it is, but it's the only important thing, or that that what science needs should be done. I think science and scientists need to always remember that they are part of us, they're part of their societies. They can't live without their society. The, the society provides the, the oxygen and the sugar and the glucose that science needs to thrive. It provides funding. It provides status. It provides jobs. Um, and so just to say, this is scientifically a good thing. We're going to go ahead and do it uh, isn't enough. You need, to, you need to say, you need to look at your society and say, is society going to think this is great? Are they going to think it's controversial? If they think it's controversial, should we open a discussion? Should we get some engagement? And I think we should. Um, I think I've actually had conversations with scientists who think the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees a right to research. Well, no, it doesn't. And even if it did, scientists and science need to be responsive to 
and inside their cultures, they can't help it in a sense. You know, if the culture says you do this, you go to jail, you probably shouldn't do that. Um, maybe you move someplace else. This is not an altogether, this is not a, an answer that I'm altogether happy with. South Dakota makes human embryonic stem cell research crime. Uh, the, the monkey human embryo I talked about uh, earlier is would be illegal and would be a crime in Arizona or Louisiana. Uh, do I think those states made bad decisions in their laws? Yeah, I do. But part of democracy is the people acting through their government have a right to do things that I disagree with and have a right to do things that science disagrees with. And science should respond to that, not by ignoring society, but by trying to communicate with it, trying to engage it, trying to understand what it wants and what it doesn't want, but also trying to explain why they're doing things. This has been as fascinating and digging into areas that I didn't expect as I thought it would be. Our time is running out, but we always end every show with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Are you game? Um, I can't guarantee the quick, but I'll try. <laughs> They're roughly to do with communication. Sure. What do you wish you really understood? People. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's your business, uh, isn't it? Well, and and one that, that it's kind of all our business. I mean, people understanding other people is kind of an essential survival skill for most of us. And we know people who aren't very good at it, and it's a problem. Um, it, there was kind of a flip answer, but actually, I think that's right. What motivates us, how we can how we can find our better selves. And, and the person whose better self I would most like to find it's my own. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? Carefully, um, non-confrontationally. Well, I mean, so the, the two words that should start every answer to every question are it depends. Mm -hmm. So it depends in part on how you read the person and, and how they're attached to it. If it's a fact they really, really believe it, then you have to be very careful about it because if you confront them directly, it's likely just to create a defensive wall. If it's something that, you know, they think they remember from the internet, but they're not sure it's easier to correct that. But I think, um, so anti-vaxxers, for example, um, I think they are largely wrong and they are largely, and, and they are, they can be dangerous to other people as well as to themselves. Uh, but many of them believe this very deeply. So in, in conversations, um, I try to figure out what it is that bothers them and give them some reasons to think that maybe it's um, what they think about vaccines isn't actually what's really going on or what's really happened. But I do think there's a big danger, and I think scientists unfortunately sometimes fall into this is to say no you're wrong science proves you're wrong uh, which i don't think changes very many minds next question what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you 
Well, that may be a contender. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that question. Um, it's the strangest question anyone's ever asked me. Well, I have been asked about whether putting human brain cells into a, into a mouse would mean the mouse would be would have a human consciousness and a human brain. Maybe that's not so strange, um, but there's no reason to think that tiny little mouse brain would actually be able to carry on a conversation with uh, a renowned <laughs> science communicator such as yourself. Um, so I, I'm drawn to weird things um, like chimeras and uh, gene editing and so on. And so sometimes people will ask me kind of factual things that just seem strange. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Walk away. Just walk away. <laughs> do you walk away? <laughs> um, no. Well, sometimes, yes. Uh, Alan, you, you're really cutting close to the bone here because I know a lot of people who would say, you're talking to a compulsive talker right now. Well, do you find many uh, people walking away? From time to time. <laughs> Uh, and well, let's, let's, I, 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 don't, I don't want to get into marital relations, but no, I think you try, you just try to, I try to um, summarize where I think they're going and say, this is, so what you're really saying is this, right? And then if I can get them to say, right, sometimes they'll move on. Sometimes they'll notice you. Notice you're actually there. Let's say you're at a dinner table when that becomes more common again, mm -hmm. and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you how do you strike up a real genuine conversation? Oh, I ask people about themselves. And so, so what do you work on, or where'd you come from? Where did you grow up? Uh -huh. um, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, one of the things we academics do is interview job applicants so mm. somebody wants to be a law professor at stanford and i'll end up talking to them and i, I remember once um my there are like five or six of us in the room talking to this person and it wasn't maybe the most plausible candidate uh, but i was asking so where'd you grow up and i later saw notes that one of my colleagues had written the conversation was so bad that that you know, Greeley even asked, where did the person grow up? Thinking that if you're not asking about their work and their thoughts, you're doing something irrelevant. But, but I like to have a sense of, of where people are from, what they like, what they're interested in. It may not be directly, you know, so what do you think about these new amendments to the Clean Air Act? Uh, but it gives me a feel for them. And, you know, generally most people think they're pretty interesting. So if you ask people about themselves, they will tell you and um, sort of, I talk to cab drivers, I talk to, to Lyft drivers and Uber drivers, and sort of my goal is always connect, find some connection, find something that they've experienced or interested in that, that I can, that we can have a conversation about. Great. Always connect. Great. What gives you confidence? Uh, probably my ignorance of the depth of my uh, uh, limitations. <laughs> I, you know, um, 
none of, I think, to occasionally lack confidence is almost the definition of being human. Anyone who is not from time to time insecure is probably not in some deep sense human. But I do think age and experience help a lot. And having been through a lot of things and gotten through a lot of things gives me some more confidence that, yeah, there's a decent chance I can muddle through even this. I may even be able to survive an interview with this august and wonderful figure as Alan Alda. <laughs> don't, don't try to get out of it with a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> Momentarily. <laughs> okay, last, last question. What book changed your life? Ah, now that's good. Um, actually, because I have an answer. Although I don't remember exactly which one. When I was a little kid, I found in our house some of the older versions, not the original editions, unfortunately, but, but like 1920s versions of the Wizard of Oz books. Most people only think of the first book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, but L. Frank Baum wrote 14 Oz books, and then somebody else wrote another 20 Oz books. There are like mm. 40 Oz books written over 40 years. And these had great uh, drawings. It was maybe six or seven. I was early in being able to read. And I fell in love with them, which then led me into an interest in science fiction and fantasy, which sparked my interest in science. So reading whichever that first Oz book I read was, um, I think may well have changed my life by getting mm. me interested in, in that kind of speculative, fantastic fiction. Um, ultimately, uh, a little later, it was the juvenile, it was the young adult books written by a science fiction author named Robert Heinlein. Mm -hmm. They had a huge effect on me growing up. Have Spacesuit, Will Travel, Citizen of the Galaxy, uh, I've reread them within the last decade, and you have. they still, they, yeah, they still speak to me. Well, you but, speak but, but, to but me. For the Oz, but for the Oz books, I probably wouldn't have gotten to the Highlands, and but for that, I wouldn't be talking to you now. Well, I've, been, I've enjoyed our talk so much. Thank you, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, uh, Alan. I, I tend to say this often, but in this case, this is deeply sincere. It, it was a great pleasure. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Thank you, Hank. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Hank Greeley is professor of law at the Stanford University Law School, where he's also director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences. The book we discussed in our conversation is CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing Humans. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Bob Lefkowitz. He won the Nobel Prize for figuring out how receptors on the surface of our cells can be targeted by drugs. But he got his start as a researcher, as a member of an extraordinary group of young physicians who worked at the National Institutes of Health as a means of fulfilling their draft obligations during the Vietnam War. In that class, four of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. And one who didn't was Tony Fauci. He was another colleague. We all knew each other then. And, you know, when I look back on it, who would have ever dreamed of such a thing? So the question is, what? how did that happen? Bob Lefkowitz and how a group of young doctors transformed modern medicine. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Caterina Vernieri. She grew up in Italy, but her passion for learning the answers to some of the most fundamental questions about the universe took her to Chicago, where she was a Ph.D. student at the Fermi National Laboratory. And I think I really got into particle physics when I saw one of the experiments for the first time that was trying to analyze uh, the collisions of the accelerator in Chicago. And it was such a complex object and millions of cables getting out of it and a lot of scientists cooperating around the world, around the clock, in order to understand uh, the results of those experiments. And I just realized I want to be part of it. Uh, that it's an amazing field where everybody can contribute and answering fundamental questions that I was very hungry for having an answer. Caterina Vernieri, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at alanalda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.